0: Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose, and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version, or just $60 for print plus online.
1: Welcome to the ABR podcast. My name is Amy Bailey and I'm the Deputy Editor of ABR and occasional judge of ABR's Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize. I was part of the judging panel last year, and many compelling stories were submitted, but the one that stood out was Natural Wonder by Tracy Ellis. In the judge's report, we describe Natural Wonder as having a gently melancholic undertow. The story is remarkable for its quietness, acknowledgement of naughty feelings, and the room it makes for small miracles. Ellis read her story in an earlier Jolly Prize-themed episode of the ABR podcast, which is of course still available in your podcast feed. All ABR's prizes are judged blind, so recently we were delighted to discover that Tracy Ellis had made ABR history as the first winner of the Jolly Prize to also win the Calibre Essay Prize. Her essay, Flow States, was selected by judges Eve Rees, Peter Rose and BJ Selcox from a bustling global field of entries as the winner of the 17th Calibre Essay Prize. Flow States begins with a single drop of water, a household tap left running. From this starting point, Ellis draws out a tale of the obliterative power, real, existential and metaphorical, of flood water. Flow States impressed the Calibre judges with its elegance, layered richness and sharp-eyed observation. The essay is part memoir, part cultural history and part solostalgic elegy. The result is something that speaks to our perma-crisis present, but also tells a much older story. Tracy Ellis lives in Sydney and works as an editor in digital and print media. She has a master's in creative writing from UTS. Tracy Ellis's essay, Flow States, appears in the May 2023 issue of ABR. Tracy Ellis reads Flow States.
2: I'm Tracy Ellis, and this is Flow States. When Weill left his jeans to soak in the bathroom sink one morning, he didn't notice that the tap wasn't quite turned off. He went out for the day, and while he was gone, a clear, almost invisible wire-thin needle of liquid continued to flow. It would have looked static, like an icicle, far from voluminous, but it was insistent, continuous. In his absence, the trickle turned into a flood. It overflowed the sink and then the bathroom of the third-floor apartment. It crept silently down the hall into the bedroom and the built-in cupboards, "'blooming inside document boxes in search of absorbent substances. "'It was drawn through the diaries and notebooks "'where I, his partner of many years, had documented my adult life. "'The water seemed to soak my belongings specifically "'as if it was coming for me, trying to wash me away. "'It left tea-coloured tide marks on my charcoal drawings "'and filled my shoes with puddles in the bottom of the wardrobe. "'As any plumber, doctor or government knows,' a little leak is never insignificant. A dripping hose can fill a swimming pool, a burst artery can drain your life away, a wily hacker can flood the porous stateless internet with classified information and change the course of history. The smell of old socks and wet dog made itself apparent within a day and we had to pull up the carpet before the mould and mildew set in. In the same way that foundations turn to mud and subside when waterlogged, Everything else solid began to crumble. The old built-in wardrobe had to go. We had to repaint so the blinds came down. Recent homeowners with the mortgage, after decades of renting, we had no insurance. Soon we were living in a shell with our boxed-up belongings. We slept on a mattress in the lounge room, an island where we lay in the dark under the bare windows and looked at the sky, as if we were camping. I even saw a long-tailed and fiery meteor tear through the atmosphere. The place we'd lived in before had only vinyl, drawstring blinds covering the windows. The owner had forbidden us to remove them. One Sunday morning as we lay in bed, the blinds still drawn against the daylight, I caught a ghostly reflection sweeping across the room. A tiny upside-down car was driving across the wall, growing from small and sharp to large and blurry again. I watched car after car, thinking I was hallucinating or still dreaming until I worked out that a small tear in the blind had turned the whole bedroom into a pinhole camera. We all told me about the flood, said a neighbour. He said you took it well. I hadn't taken it well. I was furious, and later felt guilty about it. I shouted, I shamed, angry cleaning and laying out every towel to soak up the swamp, squeezing them out and cycling them through the dryer, which ran for hours, making the air damp and musty. I piled things on the bed passive-aggressively while Weill rolled his eyes and walked away. This is how we are different. He stays calm while I catastrophize. I grew up in the inner city, only child, single mother. I wore a key around my neck to let myself in after school. I was alert to danger from a young age, but it was danger that came in the form of other people rather than from the natural world. Weill grew up on a bend of the Murrumbidgee in a modest house on a plot of land big enough for a small farm and a couple of sheds. Cattle grazed on the crown land paddock that separated their place from the river. The youngest of nine, he was still a toddler when the eldest was leaving home. There are hardly any gaps between one generation and the next in his family. It's a water wheel, continuously dipping into the gene pool to paddle through another child. His dad would sometimes get him up in the dark on cold winter mornings to launch a homemade wooden dinghy on the river and lay craypots. Murray crayfish are striking, alien-looking creatures with giant bone-white claws and knobbly bluish-green bodies like Daleks. They are listed as a threatened species now, and strict rules govern a brief fishing season along a short stretch of the Murrumbidgee from Ganmain to Gundagai. In the 2022 floods, hundreds rose up out of the Murray River downstream to escape the Blackwater, water heavy with sediment and debris that had become deoxygenated and would have suffocated them. The Department of Fisheries rescued some and held them until the water cleared and they could be returned to the river. Murrumbidgee is a Wiradjuri word that means big water or plenty water, but only the biggest floods seem to make the news. It creates the impression that a flood is a rare and isolated event, but records show that they happen often and tend to occur in clusters. The flood of 1974, one of the biggest in recent history, is recalled as a singular event but records show that the river broke its banks five times that year. In Wagga one summer, between Christmas and New Year, I took a screenshot of the weather app on my phone. I wanted proof that it could still be 40 degrees Celsius at 8pm. When it's that hot, it's tempting to swim in the river. I imagine Wheel's mother anxiously trying to keep watch over so many kids so close to its banks. In the main street of Gundagai, there's a belated memorial to Yarri and Jackie Jackie the two men who saved dozens of people with just a rowboat and a bark canoe when the river rose swiftly in the middle of the night in 1852. Eighty-nine people drowned, settlers who had been warned by the local Radri people not to build on the floodplain. The water rose even higher the following year, but everything had already been lost. The town was rebuilt up the hill on higher ground. We sometimes stop at Gundagai for a toasted sandwich or milkshake at the Niagara Café. It's been renovated now, but the backlit, painted facade used to feature Niagara Falls frozen in its continuous cascade, where Lake Erie flows into Lake Ontario. I was born downstream, in Toronto, and the coincidence was not lost on me when we pulled up outside, how I came to be here, looking at a kind of mystical postcard from there. I tell these stories as if they are mine, but I know I don't belong to this place or to Wheel's family any more than a dress or piece of paper, says I do. But if I don't belong here, nor do I belong in the place I was born, where my mother and father lived briefly and I might have been described as an anchor baby. A few years ago we travelled there to attend the wedding of Wheel's nephew, who had moved to Toronto to marry a Canadian. It was a chance to see my birthplace, even if I had no family or memories there to share. The couple were getting married on Ward's Island in the city's harbour. A couple of months before the wedding, they were on the cover of a local newspaper, their smiling faces under the headline, Sinking Hearts. They had become the poster children for the city's high water problems. When it floods, the water in Toronto Harbour can be over 75 metres above sea level. In a snow and ice-bound country, a few more days each year where the temperature is above zero means rain doesn't freeze to snow and melts what snow there is, and Lake Ontario, fed by the other Great Lakes, fills faster than the St Lawrence River can carry it to the Atlantic. On the day of the wedding, we caught the ferry to the island where the grass seemed to float. The water had receded, but the ground was marshy underfoot and fenced off in some areas. In the days after the wedding, the newlyweds invited friends and family to stay with them in a cabin at Charleston Lake. We slept on couches, shared meals, swam and boated on the lake and sang songs into the evening. Weel's gift to the bride's family was to sing all seven verses of Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. That night there was an impressive electrical storm. I woke to a crack of thunder and rain drumming heavily on the cabin roof. The next morning the rain had stopped and I walked to the edge of the lake, in a clearing under some pine trees. There was a pair of Adirondack chairs and two yellow canoes. The lake was crystal clear, but high enough to lap the grass. At the water's edge, there were three wooden stairs leading into the water that were mostly submerged. They looked like they'd been there for decades, but when I put my foot on the top step, the whole staircase broke away, slipping into the lake, and I had to wade in to retrieve it before it floated away. Back in 2009, we were visiting Wheel's parents on the Murrumbidgee when a long drought finally broke. I went down to look at the swollen river, opaque with silt like milky tea and flowing fast like it was thundering for victory. It hinted at what was to come. The river's edge here is not romantic or pretty. It's a hard scrabble place, especially in drought. People come to mess around, riding dirt bikes around pothole tracks or cruising in cars at night. There are broken beer bottles, a dirty blanket left under a tree, a bong made from a drink bottle, glass pipes for smoking mess. The huge dead or dying gums are called widow-makers for the way they drop their boughs without warning. And the grass around is spiky, alive with grasshoppers and likely snakes. Flocks of sulfur-crested cockatoos congregate at dusk and sunrise, ripping up trees and making a cacophony until someone on the other side of the river fires a shotgun to scare them away from the crops. In the paddock, I came across the carcass of a Jersey cow, hollowed out and sucked dry. It looked like a cowhide rug lying on an overgrown lawn. In 2010, the river flooded twice, The second time it licked the back doorstep of Wheel's family home, built in the 1930s. But the house stayed dry. His brother was photographed for the newspaper, rowing a boat in the front yard and standing knee-deep with his gumboots in hand. In 2012, the river rose again and his parents were evacuated. They were moved into an empty house in the part of town that is protected by a levee. They had enough of their belongings to get by, bedding, some kitchenware, a television. There would be a couple of feet of water through the house and the floodwaters would take a while to recede. This time, a news camera crew interviewed Wheels' brothers as they began the clean-up afterwards. We watched on television in Sydney as they swept out mud and pulled up carpets. We could see familiar items stacked on the dining table in the background. The reporter was focused on the devastation, the inconvenience and loss, but Wheels' brother, standing outside the house he grew up in, knowing it would have to be demolished, described the flood respectfully as a great event. Months later, Wheel's parents were still in their evacuation accommodation in town. We all met at the old house for a working bee. It was cold, midwinter, with drizzling rain. There was still much to do before the house was demolished. Wheel's mother sat on the porch in a plastic chair with a quilt over her lap. A makeshift barbecue was made over a fire in the backyard, Sausages cooked in a wire grate held together with tongs. Nieces and nephews moved furniture out to be discarded. We paused sentimentally over some mementos, like the photo of Weel's sister as a child in a box pleat uniform with cat's eye spectacles, and the house was slowly packed down and pulled apart as if it were a theatre where a family had merely acted out their lives. Below the flood line, which was knee deep inside the house, The silty mud had coated all the objects left behind so that they resembled forms thrown in a pottery glass. Every bowl, glass, pot and pan needed to be soaked to lift off the clay and reveal what was beneath. A blue and yellow salad bowl or cut crystal wine glass. We wrapped them in the pages of the Wagga advertiser and packed them into boxes to go into storage. The window above the sink looked out onto a lemon tree On the windowsill was a framed drawing of Shakespeare and the quote, This above all, to thine own self, be true. Artifacts emerged from the mud that had been lost or forgotten. There was a case of wine in one of the sheds, cellared under the cool silt, no telling whether it was from this flood or a previous one. The labels were gone, but the corks intact. Someone would be game to try it. Wheel's dad often hid bottles in strange places. I once found a bottle of Grange in his sock drawer. Under the willow near the back fence was a pale blue fibreglass canoe that had been hidden in the undergrowth, but had now reappeared, covered in a blanket of flood debris. We all said it would have been the same canoe the older brothers had rowed away in when the water rose in 1974. In another shed were two Wiradjuri grinding stones. They looked just like large river pebbles, but felt satisfying to hold. Worn smooth, one with a thumb groove, they made you look at the land differently, wondering whose hands had held them before you, whose land you were standing on, and how it had come to be divided up and claimed. I could look out and imagine the topography without the sheds and clearings, almost see the smoke from a campfire rising. Floods are rated somewhat arbitrarily as ten-year or one-hundred-year floods, but that settler history Last year, when the Wilson River flooded in Lismore, it surpassed previous records by a full, almost unthinkable, two metres. What do patterns observed over thousands of years reveal? Yari and Jackie knew. Wheel's parents raised the ground by a metre on the footprint of their old house, bulldozing a mound of earth into place before building a modern kit home on it and moving back in. They were there less than a year when Wheel's father died in his sleep on a harvest moon. he had spent his last days pulling up vegetables in the field. Wheel's brother, the one in the rowboat with the gumboots, took over the farming duties and is gaining a reputation for his chemical-free produce, experimenting with sustainable techniques. He weaves fat bulbs of purple-striped garlic into plats for the Canberra markets and digs up Instagrammable heart-shaped potatoes and entwined carrots. Each flood deposits fresh layers of rich topsoil on the plain, so it's a good time to plant things. There's nothing like the taste of the beans, tomatoes and pumpkins he grows, and nothing like the sense of contented security it gives you to fill a box with them when they're plentiful, plenty water. When I got a notice about fumigation of the common areas of our apartment block, I read the accompanying sheet on the chemicals used. Safe for humans, used in hospitals and schools, it said... But I thought about the cicadas and crickets, their throbbing purr each night in the narrow strip of grass below around the rainwater pipes. Was it safe for them? Would anyone other than me notice they'd been silenced? At what point does something that was acceptable become unacceptable? There are things that were normal when I was a child that have all but disappeared, like CFCs, Page Three Girls in the Daily Newspaper and Smoking on Planes. It's inevitable that other behaviours we take for granted will one day join this list. Each time I put petrol in my car, or tally the plastic packaging in my shopping basket, my mind rings with cognitive dissonance. I know I'm part of the problem. I don't need a talisman like the Wiradjuri stones to show me the truth. The unease you feel when your behaviour doesn't accord with your values. This above all, to thine own self be true. Can we climb out of the black water? It took a few months to repaint and put everything back together in our apartment. I retrieved some boxes from the garage one day and started stacking books onto the shelves. I found a book written by a former colleague who used to come and sit on my desk sometimes, not caring if he was interrupting. He loved to ask the kind of questions that made you question everything, like, what would you do if you won a million dollars? But then he died suddenly, and I wondered if he'd been questioning everything on the night he died. On his inner arm, he had a tattoo of a David Foster Wallace quote. This is water. A neighbour came to the door and broke my reverie. Wheel answered, and I overheard the conversation. She'd separated from her husband. He'd just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, but she'd left him before realising he was ill. Wheel had helped her with something, and she was dropping off a bottle of wine as a gift. You think it's going to go on forever, she said, handing him the bottle of Shiraz. You think everything's going to be okay. I wondered if he'd become strange and difficult, if she had shouted and shamed. Had they each said things in their frustration that couldn't be taken back and painted themselves into corners of indignity as couples do. I finished unpacking the books and drove to the beach for a late swim to wash the dust off. Afterwards I sat in the balmy air and watched the waves. Change can be hard to observe with the senses, You can't catch the turning of the tide or the point at which life seems to move from in front of you to behind. You just notice that you've become nostalgic for things you once took for granted. I stayed until twilight, that space between day and night that is also its own time, watching the blue shadows deepen on the sand.
0: Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors, who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.